Welcome to Hope Community Church of Hickory. We are so glad you decided to join us online. Make sure and hit the follow and notification buttons to keep up to date with all of our sermons. Here is our latest message. Give him some praise one more time. Oh, come on, Jaleesa. Am I supposed to lose my voice before I preach? Yeah. You know, um, I'm an avid sports fan. I know that no one here has ever really known that about me um, before, but I love sports. I always, like, like me and my brothers, my wife, we all grew up three-sport athletes. We always loved being around sports, and right now, my favorite pastime is keeping up with my favorite professional sports, and, you know, I've always been a passionate enthusiastic fan, to say the least. Most of us Philadelphia fans are, to put it nicely. But I tend to get more emotionally invested in my teams than the average person. However, this year, I've started doing something a little bit different that I never thought I would do. I think in this season of my life, maybe I just don't want as much stress as I normally get. You know, maybe it's just it's kind of the schedule, you know. Um, but I have, uh, I found myself, you know, just not wanting just to go through the grind. I, the Eagles probably did it to me this year. You know, they said 33 was going to be my Jesus year, right? The Eagles are my Judas. They betrayed me. It, it, it happened. <laughs> but uh, I have found myself this basketball season, you know, every time that the Sixers play, even though I have bought the package, just be able to watch every single game, I found myself not watching the game until it's over. Now, I keep up with the game on my phone. I follow the score. I even follow the, the box score, what's going on. But uh, if we win, I'll watch it. If we lose, I won't bother myself with it. I don't need to, to do that in my life. But I've, I never thought, you would ask me two, three years ago, I would thought that'd be a completely ridiculous way to be a fan. But start a church and have a baby at the same time. Maybe you give me a little bit of grace here, trying to keep up with things the same way that, that I used to. But now I'm able to have a much more pleasant experience watching my team play because I get to watch each and every game from a place of rest and enjoyment. If the opposing team makes a comeback late in the game, I don't have to get all stressed out because I know how it's going to end, right? If we're starting to play bad down the stretch, if we get a big lead, and if we won, then I'm fine, right? I can see it. I can enjoy the game from a place of rest and enjoyment, and I just get to enjoy the process, pun intended. But now wouldn't it be a little bit weird if I already knew the end result I already saw how the whole game was going to play out, but still woke up Rachel by yelling at the TV in the middle of the game. That'd be a little strange, wouldn't it? What if after I knew exactly how everything was going to play out, but I'm still up pacing back and forth in my bedroom whenever it's, the game's getting close, even though I know we're going to win by seven? Wouldn't that be a little bit strange? <laughs> Yet how many of us Christians have read this book? We know the end result. We've seen the promises of God. We know the victory that we are assured of, yet still we live completely restless lives. If you're still in your Bibles in the book of Hebrews, um, we're going to look at the end of chapter 3. But we talked about last week from chapter 3 how the Israelites, they had hardened their hearts because they lost sight of what God had done for them, how faithful he has been to them. 
right? They got caught up with what was in front of them. They forgot who he's already been to them, and in turn, their hearts were hardened. We talked about how whenever they were led out of captivity in Egypt, they missed out on experiencing the promises of God because of the hardness of their hearts. Then the writer says in verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter that rest because of unbelief. Here's our first point for today. Unbelief results in restlessness. Now, this is definitely true on an eternal level. Those who never come to faith in Jesus Christ will never truly experience rest on this side of eternity. They cannot experience the rest of knowing the end victory because they do not know the victor himself, that is, Jesus Christ. And we as humans, we spend our entire lives seeking rest. We think if we can just get into the right relationship or the right marriage, then we'll have that relational rest that we're searching for. We think if we can just get a, to a certain salary, we'll have that financial rest that we've been looking for. We think if we can just achieve enough, we're, we're going to get the reputational rest that we've been longing for. But no matter who you're with or what you're get, there is still a restlessness within us that we are longing to satisfy. This is exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is what every single human being that's living and breathing on this planet is searching for, whether they realize it or not, is rest for their souls, which is exactly what Jesus offers. Literally, by definition, it means the blessed tranquility of soul. But how many of us Christians have come to faith in him, have taken his yoke upon us, have learned from him, and yet still live our lives more restless than restful. This is largely due in part to unbelief. Yes, even believers in Christ can be saved and on their way to heaven and still be living in the midst of unbelief. And in turn, we miss out on the rest that he has for us today. Like we read in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, you see, where a lot of people have a hard time interpreting the book of Hebrews is that we forget that this book is specifically written to believers, not to unbelievers. See, if we see this book as being written to unbelievers, then we'll look at a verse like that, like we just read, and we'll think, oh, we're good. I'm saved. I've entered into his rest. That verse doesn't apply to me, but this isn't necessarily talking just about heaven. Now, there is a level to that because the confidence that we have in the future should result in rest for us today. But you see, the Israelites, they were used as an example for our instruction, the instruction in the life of a believer. Their example wasn't for an unbeliever to come to faith. The Israelites were God's redeemed people, and even in their unbelief, they never stopped being God's redeemed people. But so many of their generations couldn't walk in the promises and plans that God had for them because they kept falling into unbelief. 
And their story is supposed to serve as an example and a warning to us as God's redeemed people now to show us how fickle our hearts can be, how much we can act just like them. How quick can we be to go after other gods? How quick can we be to be prone to allow fear to dictate our decisions? How easily can we miss out on the rest that he offers us all due to the unbelief that we allow to go unchecked in our hearts? If you want a definition, unbelief is the refusal to trust the promises of God. The Israelites refused to trust that God was going to keep his word. They refused to trust that no matter what they saw in front of them, God was giving them that promised land. They refused to trust those promises, and as a result, that generation lived out the rest of their days wandering and restless. And again, if you look at the second part of verse 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word fear means to take anxious care. You see, the fact that we are prone to have unbelief in our lives should bother us. And we should care enough to realize the areas of our lives that we allow unbelief to linger so we don't fall into the same things that these Israelites kept falling into. And this takes place in so many different areas of our lives because just like them, we'll trust him as deliverer, but not so much as our developer. we'll, We'll trust him as our spiritual protector, but not so much our physical provider. We'll trust him as Lord over the church, but not really over Lord over every area of my life. The writer says that it should not seem as if we do not have the rest of God in our lives. It should not be hard to tell if we're people of faith or not. In verse 2, he goes on to say, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. Now, we know the ultimate good news of great joy. The good news that God became a man, he beat death, so we can now live eternally with him. That is the ultimate good news. So we have good news for eternity, but we also have good news for today because we have that good news for eternity. We have very practical, everyday good news provided to us through the gospel that we don't take advantage of. For example, like in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, you know, what you eat or you drink, what you wear, what you look like, your clothes. Look, look at the birds and look, look how God dresses the lilies. Look how he takes care of all of them. Will he not also take care of you who are of infinite more value? And then he goes on to say, Matthew 6, verse 33, very famously, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things we added unto you. Now, we hear good news like that, but we don't live like we really believe it. Why? Because we don't actually seek the kingdom of God first. Uh, we, we seek after prominence and performance and paychecks until we hit a snag or a bump in the road, and then we anxiously seek the kingdom of God to help get us out of our mess. And whenever we live that way, we seem to have failed to obtain any of God's rest in our lives. Our eternal security is not on display for the rest of the world to see, and we just live anxiously and restlessly, and we live as those who don't even have the love and hope of Jesus in their lives. But God has so much more for us, and he wants so much more for us. The writer goes on to say in verse 4 and in verse 9 and 10, he says, for you somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
Whoever entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, keep in mind that the Jewish writers that this writer is writing to right now has a long history of a very workspace relationship with God. They had 613 laws, traditions, and customs that they were supposed to adhere to in order to keep some sort of established relationship with God. Not all of those laws were God-ordained, right? But Jesus, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That's why the, the writer says his works were fulfilled from the very beginning. He came to fulfill that law so that people could rest from those works. That word literally means to rest from the law that demanded good works with a suggestion of toil and struggle with hindrances. So very simply, J- Jesus came and he fulfilled. He completed the work that we could never complete no matter how hard we tried. But that, in essence, is the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of the Christian life. Here's another point for us today. The Christian life is not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. Now, are we expected to do good works and live godly moral lives? Absolutely. Faith without works is dead. But the point is that we do not trust in our works. We trust in the completed work of Jesus, and all that we do flows from that. Because whenever we believe and rest in the work of Jesus, the pressure is taken off of us. And the writer says we get what's called a Sabbath rest. That term specifically in this context means the blessed rest from toils and troubles by the true worshipers and the true Christians. So this was the whole point of God instituting the Sabbath in the first place. The basis of the Sabbath was found upon God's day of rest after the first six days of creation. And whenever God rested, he wasn't tired needing a nap, right? He took the time to enjoy his work. And he wanted his people to have a day once a week where they just put everything else on pause and enjoyed the works of God and all that he was for them. It was one of the two things that separated the nation of Israel from every other nation on the planet. Because it didn't make any sense from a practical standpoint for them to observe a Sabbath day. It didn't make any sense from an economic or military standpoint to have an entire day once a week where all your defenses are down, your entire army and guards take the day off, and no goods are traded or produced. But yet God still took care of them. It was supposed to be a day of blessing. It was a day of remembrance that even when they did nothing, God still did everything and they could rest in that truth. But then fast forward to the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was no longer a day of rest and remembrance. Now it was a day of terror and dread. The practice of the Sabbath had been so distorted by the tradition of man. And at the time of Jesus, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees in and around Jerusalem that were in charge of monitoring how everyone kept the Sabbath. And if you were seen as doing something that one of these Pharisees would deem as work, you would be publicly executed and their favorite way of doing it that day was by stoning you, by crushing you to death with big rocks. The problem was all the Pharisees, they could have different interpretations of what work actually was. One Pharisee would say, oh, well, if, you're, if your animal falls into a pit, now you, you can pick up that, that animal, you can get that animal up out of the ditch, that won't count against you. But then another Pharisee might disagree. And if the Pharisee that disagrees sees you pulling your animal out of the pit, you could be stoned. Some of these rules would get completely ridiculous. 
Some would say, well, you can only travel a certain number of steps away from your house on the Sabbath. But if, you, if it's an emergency and you have to absolutely keep going, just claim the nearest tree as your home for the moment in the meantime, and you can keep on going. But of course, others would disagree about that as well. So it was very hard to keep up with what keeping the Sabbath actually meant. So people would walk around on eggshells, terrified of being accused of doing anything that a Pharisee would see as work. So instead of this being a day of blessing and enjoyment, it was a, it was a day of fear and confusion. Which is why some of Jesus' most dramatic showdowns with the Pharisees were over the controversies of the Sabbath. But too often, we Christians today, we act just like those Pharisees. We make up our own rules of what Christianity is supposed to look like. We sell it as a list of do's and don't do's. So you better mind your P's and Q's or God's going to be mad at you. Now we can, how often do we sell this faith as a performance-based religion that just causes people to live in fear and confusion? We can sell this life as just a life of walking around on eggshells, but Jesus says this is supposed to be a life of rest and enjoyment. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that because of the works of Jesus, we can get back to experiencing that rest that God designed the Sabbath to give us, and we can experience it now. That's why he keeps bringing up, keeps emphasizing today. Like in verse 7, he says, Today, don't harden your hearts. Today, rest in the work of Jesus. Today, in verse 11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, it's interesting to me, with all this talk of rest, why would we throw the word strive in there? These seems like, like to be completely contradicting words here. I don't know about you, but the words strive and rest, they don't really go together for me. What does it mean to strive to enter rest? Well, I was trying to think through this. I thought of Gene, <laughs> old Gene Henry. Gene just had neck surgery right now. If you don't know Gene, Gene's a worker. He's a working man. He don't want to slow down for nothing. So he had neck surgery. He's going to need the next six to eight weeks to just rest. You know how much that's going to drive him crazy? How much is going to drive Ginger crazy because he's being driven crazy? <laughs> Gene is going to have to strive to rest so that he can recover. It's very similar to us in our spiritual lives. It's not natural for us to just rest in God's promises and his works. Now, it's more natural for me to take matters into my own hands. It's more natural for me to act out of my emotions in the moment than to trust that God will take care of everything in his own timing. And we know all the right answers on paper, but it's a whole other ball game whenever life starts to get real. Now, we trust that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose until something happens to us. We trust that he'll never lead us or forsake us until the doctor gives us bad news. We trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life until we start getting berated for our faith. Then it's more natural to feel sorry for ourselves and wallow in self-pity and bitterness or anger than to rest in God's plan and his promises and his provisions. And if we as Christians seem just as miserable as the rest of the world, why would anyone else want to ever come to our faith? That's not who we are. No, we're the ones who have rest in the midst of a diagnosis. We're the ones that have joy in the midst of a trial. We're the ones that can smile in the midst of a storm because we have the promise that this life is but a vapor and the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Again, our eternal security gives us rest for today if we can put our natural tendencies aside and rest in his promises. 
In verse 8, Joshua is mentioned. Because the Israelites, they originally gave in to their natural tendencies of fear, and they fell into disobedience of not believing God's promises and not trusting that he would prevail. So like we talked about last week, that promise was passed off to the next generation. And so when the time came, this next generation actually did believe God. They moved towards the promised land. But God didn't just hand it over to them immediately. No, they still had to take steps of obedience. They had to take steps of faith first. God still put things within their path that could cause them to revert back to fear and unbelief, just like the previous generation did. And the first thing that God has the people do under the leadership of Joshua now is he has them go out towards the Jordan River. Because right on the other side of that river was the city Jericho. How many of you remember the song? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, uh, anyone under the age of 30 probably doesn't remember that song. But Jericho strategically built this city right on the banks of this river because it served as another line of defense from invaders. So it's already kind of confusing why God is leading them straight to this Jordan River, right? And especially at this time, this would not have been a peaceful beach river. No, this would have been a rushing, chaotic river. Because in, uh, where is it? It's in, it's in verse 15 of Joshua 3. It tells us this was the time of harvest. So this means at this time, the snow would have melted from Mount Hermon and would have come down, and it would have made this river 14 feet higher and 100 feet wider than it was during other times of the year. And God was going to have them cross this river, just like the previous generation crossed the Red Sea. But the way it happened this time was he made all of the priests step the soles of their feet into this rushing, raging river. And once the last two stepped into the river, then eventually the waters began to subside and the people crossed on dry land. And then after they crossed the Jordan, then they didn't just walk in and take the city. No, they had to, they had to strive for it a little bit more. They had to march around the city every day for seven days seeing nothing but 40-foot impenetrable walls, having no idea how this victory was going to come, just being haunted by those walls and their defenses and the vastness of the people in the land. But they kept going. They moved in obedience. And because they passed that test of obedience, they trusted God's promise. Because of that, Joshua 21 says, Thus the Lord gave Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to his fathers. So they got to experience the rest that God promised, but they still had to strive for it. They had to work for it. And the same for us another point for us is we find rest in obedience. Now, God may not call you to cross a river or to march around a city, but there is something that God is calling you to do. And the longer you put that off, the longer your soul will feel restless. I know I've shared this story before, but remember back um, whenever I moved to Shelby uh, first to be a student pastor, uh, the church couldn't pay me at all, so I had to find work elsewhere. First, me and Chavis were doing summer camp at the YMCA together there in Shelby. And then I eventually got a job at a physical therapy clinic. How I got that job, I have no idea. I was horrible at biology, all that other stuff. But I was working as a tech in a physical therapy clinic. And after I'd been there for a little while, I started to get this restlessness in me. And I started to get convicted that God wanted me to 
to start praying with some of the patients. And I struggled with that. I was hesitant to do so. Everyone there knew why I moved to Shelby. They knew I was a Christian. They knew I was serving as a student pastor trying to build that uh, program from the, from the bottom up. But and I didn't want to come off as like one of these over-religious guys, you know? And maybe that was wrong for me to think that way. I'm just being honest. That's just where I was at at that time. But day after day, the longer I put that on hold, the more restless I would get in my spirit whenever I would come to work. And eventually, it got so heavy one morning, I decided to make a deal with God. You ever tried to do that? I said, all right, God, if we have any first-time evaluations... I'll pray with them to start off the therapy process. And we had maybe one a week normally. So there was a good chance I was going to get off of it. But sure enough, very first patient of the day, I walk in, look at the schedule. They're in red. First time evaluation right there, 730 in the morning. Jordan will tell you, you don't really see me at 7 in the morning. Now I've got to get all spiritual, right? And so, and I tell you, I was scared. I was nervous. I was very, very awkward. Here I was, an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, dedicating my life to sharing Jesus with people, and I'm sitting here scared to pray with the stranger. I was so awkward. So before I'm telling you, I just walked up to the door, and I just stood there in the door until the lady felt my presence. And as I'm sitting there holding her chart, just looking at her, she looks up and goes, uh, hey. I'm like, do you believe in God? <laughs> she said, yeah, okay. Can I pray for you? Sure. And then <laughs> I went in and I prayed and everything, everything was fine. And it took me a couple of times. I was pretty awkward for a little while, but I eventually had to make this a habit. I had to get into this rhythm because every time I would see a, a patient come up in red on that chart, I would start to get that restlessness. And I knew it was not going to go away until I prayed with that patient. And that was such a fruitful time in my life. I loved being there. I was able to do more ministry in that clinic than I was ever able to do within the walls of a church. And I thought I was going to do something like that forever. But then two years later, I got a restlessness again. It was like a switch went off in my spirit. And I felt like I'm not supposed to be here anymore. And it didn't make any sense. I didn't know why. But then I felt that restlessness for the next two days when I went to work. And then that Wednesday, my pastors at the time, Skip and Jeff, they offered me a full-time job at the church and asked if I would leave the clinic. I said, now it made sense. You know, so you see, sometimes the Spirit will convict you, and you'll feel that restlessness until you take those steps of obedience. Other times, the Spirit will allow you to feel that restlessness, and He's going to reveal why a little bit later. But either way, you will not experience that rest until you take a step of obedience. That's why it's so strange to me whenever I hear people say, oh, well, if it's what God wants you to do, you'll have a peace about it. I mean, maybe, sometimes. I'm going to be honest, I don't see that in the Bible. I haven't really experienced that myself. Now, I, I see Moses being terrified to lead the people out of Egypt. I, don't, I didn't see much peace with him. God had to say, okay, fine, I'll send Aaron to be your mouthpiece. You don't have to talk. There was no, he was feeling no peace about it. You know, I see Gideon was hiding in a cellar. That this... This river didn't get peaceful before they crossed it. No, they walked right into the rushing, raging river. It was scary. I see Jesus sweating drops of blood in the garden in anticipation of the cross. No, the peace doesn't come. The rest doesn't come until after the step of faith, after the step of obedience. So let me ask you, what gets you restless? 
What have you been restless about? Maybe you haven't been feeling restless at all. That's when I would ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, make me restless. What needs to be making me restless? You know, have, have you been feeling restless about being more open with your faith? Have you been restless about someone that you know you need to be praying with or for? Have you been restless about taking a step of faith in your walk of life, maybe even in your career? Have you been restless about needing to be more plugged into a Christian community, be more consistent? Have you been restless about your faith being more of a Sunday morning hobby than an everyday lifestyle? I don't know what gets you restless. But I do know that it's time to strive to enter that rest by being obedient to whatever God is calling you to do. And again, this passage doesn't mean you need to try harder to be better. This just means that you need to trust God more, that he will be there with you every single step of the way and bless you with every spiritual blessing to carry out whatever he's calling you to do. Maybe you've been restless about something that needs to be repented of. Now, I love Peter's second sermon that he ever gave and recorded in Acts chapter 3, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word refreshing, it literally means a recovery of breath. Gives the picture of going for a run and needing to catch your breath. Gives us the picture of us getting so caught up in the restlessness of life, just running and running and running and going and going and going. But God just wants us to take a break, to catch our breath. And this is our last point for today. We need the rest of repentance in our lives. Now, a lot of people, a lot of us, have a hard time with that word repent nowadays. And for a couple of reasons, right? First, we have a really hard time with the idea of repentance because it causes us to admit that we're wrong. And refusal to admit wrongdoing will be the greatest hindrance to having a real relationship with God. We hate being told that we're wrong. We don't like being told anyone else telling us how we're supposed to think or act or that we see things the wrong way. And, and you know, we believe if anyone's going to tell me the way I see things or the way I feel, the way I think, the way I live is wrong, well, then they're just intolerant. And we're told and we are encouraged to dig our heels in and get defensive if anyone tells us that we're wrong. But can't you see how that can lead us susceptible to an undue amount of pressure in our lives that leads to, to anxiety and depression because we feel like we're supposed to be right all the time. We feel like we're supposed to have all of the right answers already. That's an incredible weight to carry that we are never supposed to. On the other hand, we struggle with the idea of repentance because whenever we heard the word repent, we associate it with the angry man with the backpack microphone standing on the street or outside on the corner outside of stadiums just yelling at everybody, telling them how bad they are. So whenever we hear the word repent, we hear it as repent. Change everything about yourself or burn in hell for eternity. And so even we as Christians, sometimes we have a hard time with talking about repentance because we disagree with the approach of some. And we have this idea that repentance looks like I'm facing this way, but God wants my life turned that way more towards him. And so I need to strive and I need to struggle. And I need to work as hard as I can to get my life turned around. And then finally, God will be pleased with me. and I'll be in his favor because I worked so hard to get my life turned around. But that idea of repentance can only result in two things, pride and despair. Pride, first and foremost, because you'll think that 
you did something. You think that you did something to turn your life around. Look at how hard I worked. Look what I was able to stop doing. Look how good I have been now. But eventually it's only a matter of time before that pride turns into despair because it's only a matter of time before we realize I can't be good enough. I may be able to string together a few good days, a few good weeks, maybe even a few good years, but eventually the time is going to come where I'm going to fall on my face again and I'm going to be left in despair. But I don't want anyone to know, especially not church, that I'm experiencing despair, that I've fallen again, so I'm just going to put on this facade that I live this squeaky clean life and I'm not really struggling with anything because I don't want anyone else to know that I'm in despair. But in the middle of pride and despair comes the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ pulls us up from any pit of despair and breaks down any level of pride in our lives because the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and we get to rest in him. So, you know, repentance can actually be a time of refreshing because true repentance isn't about working hard to get your life turned around. Repentance is actually a lot less about a change of actions, and it's more about a change of mind. It's what the word literally means. The word repent literally means to change one's mind, to reconsider. The word could also be translated to look again. So whenever Jesus is saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your law. Stop looking at this world. Look at me. Fix your mind on me, and you can finally experience the rest of repentance. Now, repentance does change. Does, it does change our actions. Repentance always, it always results in a change of life. It's like my pastor Jeff Marburger used to always say, if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. Repentance always does result in a change of actions, but it doesn't start there. Because I cannot effectively change any habits or actions in my life if I do not change the way I view them or think about them first. That's why Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Not by trying harder to be better. Not by being better keepers of the law. Not doing all the right things, doing less bad things. No, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this renewal of mind cannot come from my efforts to be smarter and wiser. They can only come from looking to Jesus. Because So we're, what repentance actually looks like, really, is I'm turned this way, I need to get turned that way, and, and what, where repentance actually effectively takes place because I'm always looking around, trying to figure out what I need to do. It's whenever I stop looking around at this world, stop looking around at my problems, I, it's whenever I stop looking in the mirror and I finally look up. Because contrary to popular opinion, change doesn't start with the man in the mirror. Change starts with the man on the cross. And so whenever I fix my mind on him and I look at him and I see how good he is and how gracious he is and the lengths that he went to save me and I get in his word, I read about all uh, how he loves his people and all the good things that he does and all the promises and plans that he has for me and I sit at his feet just like Martha did and I just keep my mind fixated on him and all of a sudden I realize everything about me has changed. All of a sudden, all those actions, all those things that used to keep me stuck in the struggle aren't even an issue anymore because I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at him, and I'm following his direction for my life now. That's what I need to reconsider. And the only times is whenever 
I get restless again and I get off track and I get back in the struggle is whenever I take my eyes off of him and I start looking at my problem and fixating on my problem and say, hey, God, do you see this? When I should be keeping my mind fixated on him and telling my problem, hey, do you see him? He's where the power is. I don't know about you, but I could use a time of refreshing that comes from repentance. You know, I've been uh, very, very convicted um, ever since. Um, Brother Kevin Collett came up here the other week, and he was preaching to us out of John 4, the, uh, the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. And he challenged us. He challenged me. He said, he was talking about the lady leaving her water jar, but he gave us such a beautiful perspective. He did, she didn't just leave her water pot and go back to town with intensity. No, she specifically left her jar at the feet of the Messiah. And he challenged us. He says, what if there are people in and around this community that God's already been working on? What if there are people in this community that God is ready to send to this church body, but he's waiting for you to leave something at his feet first? I know that's something I need to do. <laughs> Jaleesa, you guys could come back up, Jaleesa and Jenny. We're going to end in the moment of worship here. But I really want this to be a time of repentance. I, I, I've shared, um, y'all know me, I'm a pretty transparent guy. I'm, I'm pretty open. Um, not, I, I truly believe Christians should never live with anything to hide so we can be open and honest with each other about anything and everything. Um, but I've shared with some of you that I've, I've been struggling with some, with some bitterness, with some relational issues, um, that uh, from, from people that, um, from my past, and uh, I've been struggling with it. And immediately, those things came to mind whenever Kevin was speaking. And I've shared it with, open with it in community groups and, and some of you, and I know I need a time to leave this at his feet. I need to stop trying to carry it. I need to grow up, stop throwing a pity party. I need a time of refreshing that comes from leaving it at his feet. And I know I'm not the only one that needs to do this. Maybe there's a restlessness you've been working through that you need to leave at his feet today. Maybe you got some bitterness, some people you used to work with that's hard, and you need to leave at his feet. Maybe you just you came in here just worn down and restless, and you need that rest in your life again. I know I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to be down here at the front. I'm going to get on my knees before God, and I'm going to do business with him, and I'm going to try to leave this at his feet, fix my mind on him, and have a time of repentance for myself. And if anyone else wants to join me, the altar here is open. Let this be a time that we really Leave whatever we need to leave at Messiah's feet. You can go ahead and stand to your feet. Ladies are going to begin to sing. And the altar is open for whoever wants to meet me down here. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share what you heard this week, make sure and tag at hope underscore HKY on Instagram or Hope Hickory on Facebook. If you want to partner with our ministry, you can give online at hopehickory.org.